I'd like us to turn in our Bibles again to Hebrews chapter 2. And I want you to notice some words down here in verse 17. Spoken of our Lord Jesus Christ, of course. It says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Any consideration of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ will lead us to focus on his deity. Jesus Christ is God. Of that there is no doubt. He is the second person of the adorable Trinity. He is the one described by Paul in the New Testament as being in the form of God, but who thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Deity was not something for him to grasp after, because he is God. And the Scripture clearly teaches this doctrine. But yet, the same Bible that records the deity of Christ also declares his humanity. And it is that great truth of the humanity, the real true humanity of Christ, that comes into focus when we talk about the Advent, when we talk about Christmas time, we talk about the time when the Lord was born. Because the same Bible that declares the Lord's deity very clearly emphasizes his humanity in that he is not only God, but the God-man, the mediator. The Bible shows us in various scriptures that he took upon himself a real, true human nature. John chapter 1, for instance, records that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there in John 1.14 is the word tabernacled. It is to dwell in a tent, so to speak. The Word became flesh and dwelt in a tent among us. He became a real man. And Christ, truly God, became truly man in what was the greatest act of condescension in history. One of the Puritans said, for the Lord Jesus Christ to become a man was a greater step down than for an angel to become a worm. It's an amazing truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what we supposedly celebrate at this time, though many people think nothing of it. They might give lip service to the doctrine of our Lord's incarnation, but that's about it. But it is a wonderful truth, the incarnation, because it tells us here in this truth that God came down to us in the form of a man, condescended to become a real human being, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, in order to live for us and to die for us. There are a number of things that could be said about the humanity of Christ. The first thing I want to mention connected with that is that his humanity is unique. 
Now let's be clear, the Lord became a real man. Of that there is no doubt. But yet, in a real sense, the humanity of Christ is incomparable and it is unique. Because in becoming man, Christ never ever ceased to be God. And this is important for us to grasp because some people, when they talk about Christ becoming a man, it's almost as though he ceased to be God and turned into a man. That's not what the Bible means when it says that he became flesh or he was made flesh and dwelt among us. Actually, what happened was he took into union with his deity, our humanity. And he never, in doing that, ceased to be God. Never did he leave aside his godhood for one minute. His humanity is founded upon and is based upon and inextricably linked to his deity. Yet, though never ceasing to be God, at the incarnation he assumed something that he had not possessed previously. Because in eternity, we talk about eternity past, for our understanding of things, eternity doesn't really have a past or a future, but we speak of it in that way. In eternity, he did not have a body. He was pure spirit. But in the incarnation, he assumed something that he had not possessed eternally, previously. A human nature. He became the God-man and the mediator between God and men. Paul quotes that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that... uh, There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, the man, Christ Jesus. He was a real man. As we look at our catechism, it teaches us that he is God and man in two distinct natures and yet one person forever. Now, we're in the realms of mystery here. It can't really be explained, but it must be believed. Because when we think about it, it boggles our minds how God, God the Son, could become flesh. This is a great mystery. And the Apostle Paul speaks of it as a mystery. If you turn to 1 Timothy, the chapter 3 and verse 16, here's what it says. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. God was manifest in the flesh. Now, you and I cannot understand as finite creatures that which is infinite. But by faith, we must accept it and we must believe it because it is revealed truth. That little babe that lay in Bethlehem's manger in what was essentially a trough that animals would feed from That one who lay there was the mighty God. He was the creator in the form of the creature. And when we think about his humanity, it was supernaturally conceived in the womb of the virgin, unlike our humanity. His humanity was not derived from human sources, so to speak. He was born 
He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin by the agency of God the Holy Spirit. Great mystery. His humanity, we read in the verses that we consulted there a few minutes ago in Galatians, his humanity was made of a woman. And yet, at the same time, his body was prepared of God. You see how in Matthew chapter 1, in that record of the incarnation, Matthew 1 and verse 20, when Joseph was considering what was going on, couldn't understand it, how Mary was going to have a child, but there was no human involved. While he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. But notice, it was conceived in her. So Mary is the human instrument to bring Christ into the world. That's what it means when it says he was made of a woman. But yet his body was prepared by God. And we are told this in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5, where the Lord himself is seen to speak prophetically. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. A body. A real body. He had a real humanity. But Christ's humanity is unique because it had and has no separate existence. Some will try to, but you cannot separate his humanity from his deity. When men attempt to do that, they start getting into false views of the Lord Jesus. We must consider him as a real man. But understanding that his humanity is unique because he never ceased to be God. When Thomas the doubter saw the Lord in the upper room, showed him his hands and his side, what did he say? My Lord and my God. Jesus Christ is God. And those who deny that are not saved. According to 1 John, those that deny that he's come in the flesh are not of God, nor of the spirit of Antichrist. So his humanity is unique. There's a second thing I want to mention, and it is that his humanity is undeniable. He did really become man. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And the apostle there, in verse 6, says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." He became a man. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 teaches the same thing. He's the man, Christ Jesus. 
The words that we read in Hebrews chapter 2 come into play here as well. Uh, For example, in verse 14, For as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that the power of death, that is the devil. The Lord took part of the same. Made like his brethren, flesh and blood. Verse 16 of Hebrews 2. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. The humanity of Jesus was real. He was actually conceived in Mary's womb. And in proper human fashion, he entered the world like all of us did. He came through the birth canal and he was born into the world. It's an amazing thing. God Almighty, being able to reduce himself, if I could use that language, to that size and to enter into the world. A baby. Look like any other baby. Unlike the so-called religious art, if you saw the Lord Jesus lying in the manger, he would not have had a thing that looked like a dinner plate behind his head. No, I don't know where they get this nonsense from. These, I don't know, are they halos or what are they? Behind the head of those that purport to be Joseph and Mary and Jesus. They all have this, especially in ancient art, you'll, you'll find this. It's like a dinner plate behind their heads. Ridiculous. The Lord did not in any way appear different from any other baby. You go into a maternity ward in a hospital and you see all these little babies, they're all different. Some have no hair, some have a lot of hair, some are dark, some are fair. But all these little babies that are there, they're all pretty similar in the sense that they all are recognizable as as babies. The Lord Jesus was recognizable as a baby. And I'm not so sure, you know, about Luther's hymn. But little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Where does does that come from? Do you think that the Lord Jesus never uttered a cry as a baby? I, I happen to believe that he did. Because he was a real human being. He took on him a real humanity. He drank milk like other babies do. He developed and went on to more solid foods as he grew because he subjected himself to this as he entered the world. As a baby boy, he was weak and defenseless. He was in the arms of his mother, just like other little babies. And nothing could be more human than the circumstances of his birth, when you think about it a stable where animals were kept. The manger, the trough where the animals would eat their food. Swaddling clothes, which were actually swaddling bands. They were were pieces of cloth wrapped around his body that were normally used in embalming the dead. There was a, a picture there, something that pointed to his death. That's all they had. So they wrapped them in these swaddling close and he grew up as other children 
He took part in the growing and the aging process. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 2, that's made very clear. As it goes on to speak of his birth, from there, down in Luke chapter 2 and verse 40, the Bible records, and the child grew. He didn't stay a baby. You know how you go and buy clothing and it's zero to three months and it's three to six months and it's six months to a year and all of that. Why is that? Because children grow. In fact, there's some little garments we used to call baby grows. Babies grow. They grow into toddlers and then into little boys and girls and they grow. That's what happened with the Lord Jesus. The Bible says it. The child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Then it says in verse 42, and when he was 12 years old, think of that. He's not a baby any longer. He's 12 years of age. He's maturing. He's growing and going up to the feast with his earthly parents. He grew like other children, And when you come down to verse 52 of Luke chapter 2, it's further emphasized, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He grew. His humanity was real. It was undeniable. Christ in his earthly life was fully possessed of human characteristics. I could mention these. I'll give you the scriptures that accompany these so you don't have to turn them, turn them up right now, but you can, you can note of them and read them later. He suffered from weariness. He sat down on the well, John chapter 4, verse 6. He knew what it was to be hungry, Luke chapter 4, verse 2. He was thirsty, even on the cross. Don't we read, I thirst, John nineteen twenty-eight. The Lord slept. One time when he was in the boat, and they thought it was going to sink, the disciples did. They were all shook up. He's not shook up. He's lying there sleeping soundly. Matthew 8, 24. The Lord knew what sorrow was. In fact, he's called the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He understands our sorrows. He understands when our hearts hurt. He experienced that sorrow. He also knew what it was to be angry. Of course, not sinfully angry. He was incapable of sin, but righteously angry. Mark chapter 3, verse 5, when he looked round about them, saw the hardness of their hearts, he was angered. The Lord suffered pain and agony. He was in a great agony in the garden. Luke chapter 22, verse 44. Often we're told in the Bible that he suffered. He once suffered for sins. Yes, he really did suffer. He also experienced joy because he talked to the disciples about that, that my joy might remain in you, that your joy might be full. We're told in the Bible that he bled, that he died, and that he lay in a tomb. All of these things testify to the real and undeniable humanity of Christ. And when you consider these facts, they are really comforting to the people of God. 
Because when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not thinking about one who doesn't understand us, who doesn't know what it's like to have heartache and pain. In fact, the Bible teaches us that he was in all points tempted or tested like as we are, yet without sin. There's not a pang that rends the heart, but the man of sorrows has a part. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. He can identify, and in fact he does identify, fully enters into our sorrows, our cares, and our human feelings. Because he's passed this way. He's our great high priest. And having suffered, he's able to succor those that are tested. Jesus can fully sympathize with you. In fact, he can empathize with you. He knows and he cares. All because he has a very real, undeniable humanity. He's not in an ivory tower somewhere imagining or trying to imagine what our experience is. He knows what that experience is. And he understands. His humanity is unique. His humanity is undeniable. There's a third thing I want to mention here. And it's this. His humanity is unimpeachable. Now what I mean by that is. There was and there is no fault in his human nature. The rest of us are taken by sin. The rest of us are the sinful progeny of Adam. We inherited wickedness from him. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. That's all of us. We're born in sin and shaped in iniquity. But this is not true of Jesus. He has no sin. There's no fault in his human nature. His humanity, unlike ours, is perfect and spotless. But preacher, I thought you said that he was truly a partaker of our nature. Yes, he is a partaker of our nature. Absolutely. But without sin apart from sin. Paul wrote something really important, and it's important that we get what he actually did say rather than what we think he said, in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son, watch this, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. In the likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't send him in sinful flesh. The Lord never had sinful flesh. And there was no accusing finger that could ever be pointed to a flaw in the character or the life of the Son of Man. Now they tried to find fault with him. Of course they did. They tried to trip him up in his words. They tried to find things against him in the law that could stick to him. 
But the Lord, if I could say it reverently, was like Teflon. Nothing could stick to him. There were no charges that ever stood against him. Because he's the perfect man. And as such, he is our perfect example. 1 Peter chapter 2 speaks this way of the Lord. From verse 21. 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. He did no sin. Never once. And he left us an example to follow. So we must endeavor to be like Christ in all areas of our lives. Let me hasten to add, you don't find yourself being made right with God because you try to copy Christ's life. There was a man who wrote a book called The Imitation of Christ. And while it is true that we are called to imitate Christ, we're not saved by imitating Christ because we can't imitate him. We can't replicate his life perfectly. We're sinful. We're not like him without spot. There's plenty of faults in us. But he left us an example to follow. We look at his life and we seek to be like him. That's a good prayer to pray. Lord, make me more like Jesus. And if we are more like Jesus, then we'll endeavor to be like him in many different areas of life. For example, the Lord Jesus was a man of prayer. He prayed much. If you study Luke's gospel in particular, you'll see just how much the Lord prayed. One example I have here is in Luke chapter 6, verse 12. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. He continued all night in prayer to God. Do we spend time in prayer? He prayed much. He's our our example. He had compassion for sinners. Oh, the examples I could give you of the love that Jesus had for sinners. He stood there in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, and looked over Jerusalem, and the Bible says he wept over it. And the word wept there, the original word for for wept is to break forth in wailing and crying. A man crying out loud. That's our Lord. Crying and, and weeping over lost Jerusalem. When the Lord was dealing with the rich young ruler, the word of God tells us that he loved him. We must love sinners. 
Something else about the Lord that we need to copy. He was angry at sin. He was angry at it. He saw things that were wrong. It made him angry. Righteously angry. Not sinfully angry. That was an impossibility. But righteous anger welled up within him. Mark chapter 11 verse 15 says, They come to Jerusalem and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. Imagine the Lord going through there, just turning their tables over. He was angry. In fact, another scripture tells us that he made a whip out of cords and drove them out of the temple. This namby-pamby, soft, effeminate Jesus that many present is a myth. Jesus was angry with sin. And so, mu- so must we be. And then he suffered abuse and he suffered ridicule without murmuring, without fighting back. 1 Peter 2.23 makes that clear. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. That's a very unnatural thing. Our tendency is to fight back when somebody attacks us. To meet fire with fire. You do that to me, I'll do that to you. That's the spirit that most people have. Jesus was not like that. We should not be like that. He always did those things that pleased the Father. What a statement that is. All that we could live in such a way before we ever do things, think, will this please the Father? Will this be pleasing to God? Will God be able to bless us? Would I be able to ask the Lord's blessing on this? Jesus always did those things that pleased him. So we must seek to live by his grace. When he was on the cross, it was said, Behold the man. Behold the man. His humanity was real. And his humanity is vital. Because you know he could never have been our saviour. He could never have died for us if he had not been a man. God cannot die. It's impossible for God, the essence of God, to die, to cease to exist. But Jesus died because he became a man in order that he might be capable of dying. And as a man, he died for men. And that is a truth that we certainly see in the incarnation. I've heard it said by some who excoriate the whole idea of having Christmas or any kind of a celebration. Well, now, the Bible never tells us to celebrate his birth. Well, excuse me, but all over the Bible, it mentions the birth of Christ. The Apostle Paul talked about it there, didn't he? In in Galatians chapter 4, I read the verses at the beginning of the service today. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. That's the birth of Christ. Matthew chapter 1 describes the birth of Christ. Luke chapter 2 describes the birth of Christ. Luke chapter 1 speaks of the lead up to the birth of Christ. 
In the Old Testament, his birth is mentioned in Isaiah 9, 6. In Isaiah 7, 14. His birth is mentioned in, in Micah chapter 5. When it speaks of Bethlehem, where he was to be born. The birth of Christ is mentioned everywhere. But not only that, the incarnation is mentioned everywhere. And that's different from the birth. The birth happens nine months after the conception, right? Life doesn't begin at the birth of a baby. Life begins at conception. So what we celebrate Christ coming into the world, he didn't come into the world when he was born in Bethlehem. He came into the world nine months before that, into the womb of the virgin. That was the great miracle. And because of that miracle, we have salvation. He could never have gone to the cross if he had not gone to the cradle. If he hadn't been born, he never could have died. So whether you want to celebrate as, as such the birth of Christ on the 25th of December, that's up to you. As Spurgeon said, it'll do just as well as any other day of the year. Even though we don't necessarily believe it was the 25th of December, it doesn't matter. If people's minds are running along that line today, thinking about the birth of Christ, for me, that has to be a good thing. That has to be a good thing, that people are caused, they're compelled to think about Christ coming into the world. Of course, a lot of the nonsense can all be left aside, but we can have an opportunity because of this day to witness to people and to speak about Christ coming into the world. And to speak especially about the purpose of his coming into the world. Because he was born to die. Bethlehem led to Calvary. The cradle led to the cross. And that's what we concentrate upon today when we think about the humanity of Christ. As a man, he came among men to dwell and to die. To suffer for us. To become our saviour. I trust that we all know him today and that we can rejoice in this great truth of the real humanity of Jesus.